Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where we have unscripted conversations with our guests about legal news, topic stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm John Amarillo of Taft Law, and joining me on the pod today is Trish Rich of Holland and Knight. Hi, Trish. Hey, John. Trish, we have a very special guest on the pod today. I think anyone who's even occasionally read a national newspaper of the last few years will recognize his name. Colonel Yevgeny Eugene Vindman of the United States Army. As many of our listeners will likely recall, Colonel Vindman was fired from a position in the Trump White House after he raised concerns with his twin brother, Alexander Vindman, about the former president's dealings with Ukraine. Colonel Vindman was then serving as deputy legal advisor on the prestigious National Security Council when his brother heard President Trump pressuring Ukrainian President Zelensky for political dirt on his election opponent, Joe Biden. After they jointly reported the incident to the NSC Council, Colonel Vindman and his twin brother, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, were then sacked just days after the conclusion of President Trump's impeachment trial. So that is how you, our audience, probably knows the name. But as usual, and is usually the case rather, Colonel Vindman is much more than the event that made him famous. While serving as Deputy Legal Advisor, To the National Security Council, his portfolio included NATO, the International Criminal Court, International Humanitarian Law, Human Rights, and more. He also served in a variety of positions in the Judge Advocate General Corps, and before that as an infantry officer, including in the Army's famed 82nd Airborne Division. He's currently about to retire. Congratulations to him. And we are privileged to have him here with us to talk with us today. Colonel, welcome to At The Bar. Thank you for the warm introduction, John and Trish. I'm looking forward to having a, a great chat with you. Yeah, thanks for coming. Colonel, we've had you on, though, not not to discuss former President Trump and that incident, but rather because you recently authored a really thought-provoking article that caught our attention entitled Putin's War is an Existential Crisis for the United Nations. And there you discussed whether that international body and all the post-World War II rules-based regime that went with it remains relevant in its current form. And that's what we'd really like to dive into with you today. But before we jump in, I I think it would be useful for our audience if we look back for a broad understanding of international law, particularly the law of war, uh, which seems really relevant following the launch of Russia's war of conquest against Ukraine, especially given that Russia is a permanent member of the UN Security Council a body that is charged with preventing exactly those kind of wars in the first place. So when we're talking about the law of war, what does that mean? What sources of authority are we looking to? Sure. So we're looking in the realm of public international law. And it's, as you would imagine, a fairly complicated question because you have issues related to the UN and prohibited use of force. The reason why the UN was designed in in the wake of World War II and really after the failure of the League of Nations is to prevent aggressive wars uh, from taking place. The law of the jungle, where a larger, more powerful country can change unilaterally the borders by invading another smaller country. And uh, so there is one uh, certainly component of international law. The law of war, also known as international humanitarian law or the law of armed conflict, is a subset of that law, public international law, lex specialis. So it's a special area of the law unto itself, developed over many centuries, frankly, of warfare, and really encapsulated and put down black and white in the Hague Conventions, really starting around the turn of uh, the 20th century in 1907, 
and onward. And then Geneva Conventions and the progeny of the Geneva Conventions. There are four in the wake of World War II. And there are additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions. That is where the law of war, international humanitarian law, primarily stems from. And the purpose of the law is really to protect civilians and, and minimize the horrors of war. And there are four principal protocols to the Geneva Conventions that cover treatment of prisoners of war, treatment of civilians, and each articulate in a number of different articles the regulations of how you're supposed to fight war to protect civilians and those that are forced to combat, those that are out of the fight. So, for instance, wounded enemy prisoners of war, uh, even though they may have one time been fighting you, once they became wounded, you can no longer target them. So that is the, the general body of international law known as the law of war. I think that's a very useful framework to set today's discussion. But I have a conceptual question for you. And this is something I love nerding out on because it's what I focused on in my studies in law school. And you know, one of the things that I think you always hear from critics or skeptics of international law and just, you know, many people who don't have a maybe full understanding of what it's meant to accomplish is that it's, you know, it's like an inherently absurd exercise to try to regulate something as inherently lawless as war. What do you make of that sort of real politic Nick perspective? And given that there's no, you know, overarching coercive governmental body to enforce international law and the law of war, what is its real world impact? So I come at this from the perspective of an army officer that has served in the United States Army for about 25 years. And so war by its very nature is vicious and destructive and horrible and cruel. And that cannot be avoided in many cases. But there can be ways, there must be ways to protect civilians and not engage in the barbarity that has taken place over the course of centuries where entire cities were annihilated by enemy forces. And although there is not a mechanism to enforce the law of war, really that mechanism is, is the United Nations and, and frankly powerless in this current struggle based on Russia's uh, veto power. Uh, right. There are mechanisms to hold individuals accountable for violations of the law of war. And they can be individuals that are committing the actual crimes on the ground along the lines of the murders that we see in Bucha and other places in Ukraine. But they're also commanders through the, the concept of command responsibility. And that's going all the way up the chain to uh, Vladimir Putin himself. So he and the entire chain of command, all, all the military forces can be held accountable in a forum, whether it be an international tribunal something like the International Criminal Court, or pursuant to Ukrainian law, because every signatory to the Geneva Conventions is obligated to have domestic law on its books to prosecute violations of the law of war. And this may be a good time to talk about the principles of the law of war. I talked about the purpose as sure. uh, being necessary to prevent unnecessary civilian death. And there are four main principles that support that. And the first principle is military necessity, which means that you only attack targets if there is a military purpose to attack those targets. No wanton destruction of cities or non-military targets and objectives. 
The second principle is a principle of distinction. So you are distinguishing military objectives, military targets, whether they be people or, or objects, from civilian non-combat, non-mission-related subjects. So the base principle of the concept of combatant immunities, that, me- that means that if you're a soldier and you see an enemy soldier, you can shoot him on sight. There's no need to provide warning. You have the right, because you're in a state of war, to, to shoot that individual. But you lose that combatant immunity, certainly if you violate the law of war. And the principle of distinction means that you have to distinguish between a soldier in uniform, somebody that's fighting you, and civilians that are just in the combat zone. The third principle is the principle of proportionality. If you are attacking a military target and you've gone through the steps of distinguishing military from civilian, sometimes you're not going to be able to avoid civilian casualties. So again, this is the nature of war. They can't be targeted principally, but sometimes the civilian casualties cannot be uh, avoided. And, and sometimes that term is also sanitized to collateral damage. Right. So if you think about it in terms of collateral damage, the collateral damage, so the injury to civilian persons and objects, can't be disproportional to the military advantage gained by attacking a, a valid target. And the last principle is the principle of humanity. So there are certain weapons that are banned by the law of war. For instance, glass ammunition is banned because you can't x-ray. And so therefore it inflicts damage that can't be repaired very easily. Through further conventions, there are are weapons that are banned, chemical weapons uh, and biological weapons. And then you cannot use legal weapons in an unlawful manner. For instance, you can't shoot an enemy soldier with an M16 or a round which all those weapons are legal, but you can't shoot him in the legs and arms just to maim him and cause injury and and wanton cruelty. So those are the main principles that the United States operates on, that Western powers operate on, and that by appearances are lacking with the Russian forces in Ukraine. Is it too early to conclude that Russia is committing war crimes in Ukraine? Uh, No. The short answer is no. In fact, Ukraine announced in the last couple of days that they're trying a soldier pursuant to their own laws for a violation of international humanitarian law, the law of war. And that's because they have determined that this particular soldier, this is criminal litigation. Really, it's it's classic sense. Colonel, he's Ukrainian or a Russian soldier? He's He's Russian. Russian. He's a Russian soldier. And they're going to try him in uh, Ukrainian court for a violation of the law of war. They have evidence, I assume this is yet to play out in the the court, that he committed a a murder. He killed a civilian that was not directly participating in hostilities, that was not impeding the mission. These are significant nuances that must be overcome by the prosecution. But if he is found to have killed a civilian for no reason, then he's guilty of a law of war violation and uh, he's subject to penalty. So there are what appear to be obvious violations of the law of war. Earlier on, there were discussions about whether thermobarics, for instance, uh, the use of thermobarics were the use of banned weapons. And, And that's not the case. In fact, thermobaric weapons, sometimes people call them vacuum bombs, are in the U.S. inventory. And they're very powerful. They're massive weapons. Going back a ways and dating myself, at the beginning of the Iraq war, there was something called the MOAB, the mother of all bombs. 
which was yeah. a thermobaric bomb. That is a lawful weapon to use as long as you're abiding by the principles that I've, I, I laid out earlier. And you can use it against valid targets. Uh, what you can't do and what we see quite often is Russia's violation of the principle of proportionality and distinction attacking schools, attacking hospitals, attacking apartment complexes. Those are violations not because of the weapon used, but because of violations of the principles, distinction and proportionality. Same goes with cluster munitions. Thank you for answering that question, because it seems to me what we're seeing in the media is obvious war crimes of Russia in Ukraine. And every time we turn on the news every time we wake up. There's another news alert over the weekend. You know, Russia bombed a school. We have now, I think, over 200 confirmed cases of Russia targeting medical clinics. We're seeing systemic rapes, systemic executions of civilians. You know, these reports are just pouring out of Ukraine. So I agree with everything you're saying. It seems to me that it's obvious what's going on. But is there any way to stop this in real time or is Russia just going to keep doing this until there's some sort of escalation of another country going in there and getting involved? So, I mean, that's an interesting question. And frankly, I think one of the reasons why the Ukrainians are initiating their prosecution of war crimes right now, while the conflict is still ongoing, is to dissuade Russian service members from either following illegal orders or from engaging in their own acts to esponte violations of the law of war. So that's one way. The fact that there are numerous international tribunals and and attempts by countries that I believe Germany uh, among them of trying to establish universal jurisdiction of war crimes in, in Ukraine. And there are over 40 countries involved in potential war crimes investigations and prosecutions. Those are restraining factors potentially on Russian forces. How do you stop the Russian war crimes? Is you defeat them on the battlefield. And that is probably the only realistic way to stop Russian war crimes. And the Ukrainians, frankly, have performed magnificently on uh, the battlefield beyond many expectations of how they would perform. And the Russians frankly, have performed much worse than many people anticipated they would on the battlefield. The many years of corruption upon which the Putin regime and and Russian government is based are really uh, having obvious detrimental impacts on their ability to perform the mission of the military. So let's let's talk about that in the law a little bit more, Colonel. It it seemed earlier you mentioned international tribunals, by which I'm guessing you meant like the ICC, and it seems to me that it, it's easy to discuss the possibility of bringing someone to the dock in the ICC when you're talking about smaller countries, like Serbia, for example, comes to mind, uh, the Congo. But when you're dealing with a country like Russia, the likelihood of any significant decision maker ever ending up in The Hague seems to me to be near zero, unless there's some major regime change and the new regime hands over those decision makers. So. My question is this, if that's right, does the threat of prosecution once a war has started like this actually hinder peace negotiations because the Vladimir Putins of the world know that unless those peace negotiations include terms that prevent those kind of prosecutions, they have no incentive 
to end the war. So I suspect that the Russian government is not the least bit concerned about the ICC forever right. facing accountability in international tribunal. They are purely acting in their own interest. Vladimir Putin's acting in his own interest in trying to recreate the, the Russian empire. However, I don't know that that necessarily means that they will avoid accountability in the long run. It, it took uh, after Kosovo and, and Bosnia a decade or more for some of the, the actors and some of the leaders to be tried. Now, I acknowledge that those are much smaller conflicts and much less powerful actors on the international stage. But I uh, think that the accountability mechanisms are going to be multi-tiered. So I think the ICC has a role. I think Ukrainian courts have a role. There could be other tribunals, ad hoc tribunals, and, and maybe universal jurisdiction. So the ICC may focus on the most senior actors in the Russian government, and they can collect evidence now. They can build cases. They can even try to uh, try cases in absentia. But I suspect that uh, accountability is down the road, significantly down the road for senior Russian leadership. But Ukrainian courts can act almost immediately. There are a number of Russian POWs that are in custody. And to the extent that you can lay the litigation base, prove in a criminal proceeding that not only something appears to be a violation of the law of war, but you can say this individual violated the law of war by murdering this civilian. There's evidence of that. I mean, we've seen it just this week. There is some video footage of uh, Russian soldiers engaging some sort of industrial facility and going yeah. to the guardhouse, speaking to Ukrainians, the Ukrainians walking away and being shot in the back. And later, those Russian soldiers were seen on closed camera video footage inside the facility. So that is the type of evidence that I think you can bring to a tribunal, Ukrainian courts much sooner and start holding people accountable. And you can treat this almost like as a racketeering prosecution. You can work up the chain. If these soldiers were, for instance, ordered to attack indiscriminately by the next level commander, you can try them. Then you can try the commander and, and work up the chain. And I would expect that the way this ultimately plays out is multi-tier prosecutions in different venues. That's probably a good place for us to take a break. We'll be right back. Getting legal malpractice insurance doesn't have to be complicated. Let CBA Insurance Agency do the heavy lifting for you. We shop to the top carriers to find the best rates. Get a free quote by visiting cbainsurance.com. Org. And we're back. So, Colonel, now that we have a baseline understanding of uh, you know the international legal regime that governs the conflict and what Russia is doing, what the possible consequences for it may be, I want to turn to the article that you wrote that got our attention, in which you call for a successor organization to the UN, or at least a heavily modified version of the UN. What were you getting at there and why? Sure. Well, obviously, the current war in Ukraine is a existential threat in my mind to not only the rules-based order, but to the United Nations. If the purpose of the United Nations is to 
prevent unlawful use of force and the type of aggression that we're seeing where there's really absolutely no valid reason for the Russians to attack Ukraine. It's purely a power grab and a land grab. And Russia is a veto member, permanent member of the Security Council, charged with preventing those very actions amongst every other country around the world. We have a significant problem. It's an existential threat to the United Nations, very much like there was an existential threat to the to the League of Nations. And in my article, I write about uh, Emperor Haile Selassie, uh, Emperor of Ethiopia, petitioning the League of Nations in 1936 to help Ethiopia and stop the aggression of Italy and Benito Mussolini attacking Ethiopia for very similar reasons, to absorb the territory, to rebuild some semblance of a colonial empire. And when the emperor appeared in person, it was very striking at that time to have such a petition. And Volodymyr Zelensky's petition to the UN really conjured the same sort of images. In 1936, although there were sympathetic countries, no real action occurred. And Italy's actions were certainly barbaric with gassing of cities, the use of chemical weapons and uh, indiscriminate attacks. Two years later, because there was no action, we had the Sudetenland crisis in Czechoslovakia and really the start of World War II. And that was the death knell for the League of Nations. And the parallels are really striking between the petition of a national leader appearing before a body charged to ensure peace and in 1936 and in 2022. So I think there are either significant reforms that are, are necessary for the UN or perhaps the death of the UN and the creation of an entirely new body. And I certainly don't have all the answers to this, but in any case, I think it would be some sort of restraint on a country like Russia from engaging in the current activities. So I'm not advocating that we avoid reality and the recognition that there are certain countries that are more powerful than others and that those countries are also nuclear powers. So some form of security council, some form of central committee is probably appropriate. But I am advocating for something akin to a veto override. So something that restrains the worst impulses of a country like Russia, where now they know they have a veto that cannot be overridden. They can take whatever action they desire and face condemnation, as they did in the UN General Assembly by a really huge margin, historic margin, but with no way to override their action. A veto override, which would also have a pretty high bar, would restrain potentially the worst impulses of aggressive countries like Russia by letting them know that in extreme circumstances, for instance, whatever the threshold may be, every other member of the Security Council, for instance, voting against their action or every other permanent member voting against their action and sending the action to the UN General Assembly, there can be a myriad of different iterations of how you structure a veto override. But something at least to restrain those impulses would be, I think, worthwhile. So if I could distill your criticism of the UN Security Council down a little bit, it's your problem is really with 
the veto that the five permanent members have, because when one of them is engaged in an aggressive war, that veto allows them to ride roughshod over the Security Council's enforcement mechanisms. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, there are numerous issues with the United Nations system, but in this current conflict, I think that issue with the veto is probably paramount among them. And so, frankly, the UN can can stand uh, a fair amount of restructuring and reform in and of itself. But if you think about what the main purpose of the UN is, is to prevent aggressive wars, then this must be one of the, the main elements of that reformation. But then what? I, I know that's kind of an open-ended question. I guess what I mean more specifically is, let's say you had a veto override and that occurred here. What measures could the UN then take that are not currently being taken that could put an end to a war like this? Yeah, so um, that's an interesting question. Assuming there is no override, it's unclear that anybody would go to war with Russia, given that they are a nuclear power. But what it would do is put additional pressure on them in an international system and condemnation. And so the absolute absence of any real action in the UN, what's the purpose of having a UN if they can't act in condemning a war and authorizing the use of force? Whether force is, is actually used because of the UN Security Council resolution, I think is is a significant question. But that's more of a national issue. If, if there's a UN Security Council resolution condemning Russia and calling for all other countries to act in defense of Ukraine, at least the UN has fulfilled its purpose. But now that organization is completely paralyzed. And frankly, we're acting in the absence of UN action anyway. We're providing significant weapons and support to Ukraine. And this gets into principles of neutrality and, and co-belligerency, other principles of international law that I think are significant in this conflict, that we, by some arguments, uh, we are not certainly neutral as potentially envisioned in the, the Hague Conventions of 1907, but we have not necessarily crossed the line into co-belligerency. So I think the UN for it to be an effective organization needs to be able to act in situations like this, but that doesn't necessarily mean all the actors, just like if you think about NATO article five, an attack against one is an attack against all. That doesn't necessarily mean every country will go to war against a NATO adversary. It just says that they can, and their actions would be in accordance with international law. It doesn't require them to do so. Exactly. So if you think about it this way, it's basically a reinforcement of a rules-based order. Mm. It, it's ironic that you mentioned the Hague Conventions, because if, if memory serves, I think Russian Tsar Nicholas II got those started, didn't he? You know better than I in that regard. <laughs> I think he did because he knew he couldn't keep up with the militarization of the West, and he thought a rules-based regime that limited arms buildup would inure to Russia's benefit in the long run. Didn't that quite irony. work out that way. Yeah, it's pretty ironic. I did have to laugh earlier when you talked about Putin being a strong man, and I, I wanted to make this joke. Apparently, you have not seen the photo of him on the horse with no shirt, or you haven't seen him play his man at hockey, because I think those are demonstrative of his strength. Um, <laughs> well, I think that the statement I, I said was he he's a strong man that's demonstrated himself not to be particularly strong. Yeah. And I've seen both of those, and 
I was not impressed, but uh, <laughs> it's hard to erase them from your mind. They you, they can't be unseen. It sure is. Oh, I, I love the hockey videos where you yeah. know the defenders just part like the Red Sea and the, the goalie <laughs> just sort of freezes and he goes right into the... It's amazing just how, yeah. he's just how so his mere presence awes right. them into submission. Mm-hmm. It's very hard for me. Uh, as, as John knows, I'm not the biggest sports fan in the world. Uh, so it's very hard for me to tell when athletes are, I think the term is flopping, right? Or, like, <laughs> But when I watch those videos, I can tell that's what's going on. <laughs> so, Colonel, let's bring this back to accountability. Do you envision any realistic outcome to this war where President Putin and his top decision makers are held to account, period, by any tribunal? So... I could envision a scenario where Putin, who's been brought low by his numerous failures in this war, is removed from power, or if he is removed from power, facing accountability with Russia giving him up in order to restore goodwill, international goodwill, and eliminate sanctions, and the same with his top-tier leadership. In the absence of Putin losing power or dying, I don't see accountability for senior Russian officials. So that's why I think a multi-tier accountability mechanism where the the ICC is focused on sort of the big fish and other tribunals and the Ukrainians are focused on on more sort of not necessarily lower tier, but, you know, the war, their war crimes, the law of war crimes themselves rather than crimes of aggression, which is how the war started. So this is where there are two aspects to um, of public international law that, that just said bellum, which is how a war starts and Russia's violation of, of those rules and violation of the charter. And then juice and bellow, the actual fighting of the war and war crimes that are committed, the rapes, uh, the murders, the indiscriminate bombings, uh, and those things are the actual conduct of the war. And frankly, it's hard to recognize a professional military force, the Russians fighting in, in Ukraine. They almost seem like a, a barbarian horde when they enter an area, they loot, they pillage, they murder, they destroy everything indiscriminately. What's striking, frankly, to me, and, and a clear indicator of a complete lack of professionalism, is even officers, when they're captured on the battlefield, there was one case I think back in in March, in the middle of March, where Ukrainian forces captured Russian officers that had had four or five laptops, you know, half a dozen iPhones, and they're looting and and pillaging Ukrainian villages and cities. But that is always, you know, I'm a little wary when people are completely dismissive of Russia's military capabilities, because that has historically always been their M.O., They start out very poorly and very sloppy in every single war of the modern era, and then they slowly build up, you know, a fairly effective and and World War II, certainly devastating capability. So the longer this war drags on, I'm I'm not entirely sure we'll be able to continue discounting Russia's military capabilities. I I don't know that Russia has a great deal of time to make up for their very poor start. And when the there are a number of faulty assumptions, uh, strategic assumptions about 
the Ukrainians are going to fold very quickly. The war is going to be over in, in a few days. There's no need to build logistics. That makes operational objectives extremely hard for military forces to achieve. But besides that, it's the basics that I think the Russians are having extreme difficulty. And if they've learned much from their operations around Kiev, it doesn't seem like it's sufficient to overcome Ukrainian forces. They're almost fighting a 20th century war in the 21st century, and there's not going to be that kind of breathing space for them. Their logistics are terrible. Their small unit leadership and tactics are terrible. And those are all cultural, structural issues that they're not going to be able to fix in the short term. The Ukrainians are in large part successful because they have secure internal lines of communication, which means they can get material, logistics, personnel where they need to without having to worry about anything other than maybe deep strikes by the Russians. And they have fantastic small unit leadership where they have a general assignment given to them by their superior and says, I want you to do X objective, but they're not told, this is how I want you to do it. This is right. And that's the big contrast with a top-down Russian military structure. Exactly. That note of hope is a good place for us to take a break. We'll be right back with Stranger in Legal Fiction. Contract automation isn't a trend. It's a strategic imperative. Though big players in the e-sign world will make you believe implementing it will cost you big bucks and more than a few headaches, it doesn't have to be that way. DocuB is an easy-to-onboard, full suite of products that includes e-signature, brilliant workflow capabilities, and AI contract automation at nearly half the price of those out-of-touch behemoths. The one thing DocuB doesn't automate? Their customer service. Visit get.docub.com slash contracts to set up a call with a real live person. DocuB will be with you every step of the way. Seeking to expand your legal network, sharpen your skills, and obtain free CLE? Unless you plan on being a professional failure, that's probably a good idea. Join the Chicago Bar Association today and connect with lawyers and judges who lead Chicago's legal community. The CBA will help you expand your personal and professional networks while providing practical programs and resources that meet your specific practice needs. New lawyer membership starts at just $82 a year. Learn more at www.chicagobar.org. And we're back with Stranger Than Legal Fiction. Our audience knows the rules. They're pretty simple. Trish and I have done a little research on the internet. We found one law that is real, but probably shouldn't be because it's so strange or wrong. We've made another one up, and we're going to quiz each other and the colonel to see who can distinguish strange legal fact from fiction. Colonel, are you ready to play? I will do my best. Trish, why don't you lead us off? Okay. Law number one. In the state of Florida, an unmarried woman cannot parachute on Sundays. Or law number two. In Yamal, Oregon, it is prohibited to engage in fortune telling, astrology, or palm reading. Which one is real? Which one is fake? And or repealed? Colonel, what do you think? Okay. So I think that the real law is the one that uh, no palm reading. Okay. You think that the one that prohibits fortune telling, astrology, or palm reading? Okay. John, what do you say? I'm going to say the Florida law is real because one of the 
the rules I've learned playing this game long enough is if it's misogynistic sounding, it's probably real. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And it's Florida. There so. you go. Yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> the Florida Can law. Can you repeat that? Because that was a little bit, that's a little bit insane. Yeah. So the Florida law was an unmarried woman cannot parachute on Sundays. That was a real law. It was repealed in 2005. Oh, all right. Yeah. Sorry, John. Um, the Oregon law is still on the books. It is prohibited in the city of Yamal, Oregon to engage in fortune telling, astrology, palm reading, or anything, spirituality, anything that is not rooted in science or a profit. So um, that's one for the Colonel and zero points for John. Hmm. Okay. Round two. I went international appropriately enough. In Russia, it is illegal to do just about anything that President Vladimir Putin dislikes, including writing him an unflattering constituent letter. Option number one, no writing Putin nasty grams. Option number two, in China, another totalitarian state, the law encourages or at least incentivizes motorists to kill pedestrians whom they've accidentally struck with their vehicles. Colonel, what do you think? Yeah, so I can't imagine that it's lawful to kill a pedestrian that you've wounded. So I think that's not the real law. Uh, although both of them are quite outrageous. So I think that the Russian law is real and the Chinese law is not real. Trish? Yeah, so this is just John being his usual tricky self. I, so I read an article <laughs> a few years ago about this running over Chinese people. And, and I think the thing was, and I know you're going to explain it to me in a minute. I think the issue was that it changes your liability to the person and the person's family who has passed. And so yep. it is, it's monetarily advantageous to kill them. But I don't think that was a, a function of law. And, and Putin is obviously a monster. So uh, I think I'm going to go with the Putin law being real and the China thing being incentivized by the legal structure, but not actually a law. So, yes and no. And I like this. I like this dichotomy because it's about as hazy as most international law in my <laughs> experience. The Russian law is real in that people have been prosecuted for writing unflattering letters to Putin. I could not actually find a law that was identified that was broken supporting that prosecution other than the fact that Putin didn't like it and they went to prison for it. So whether yeah, that's a law like or not. like all those guys that have heart attacks in the trunk of their cars in, in Russia. Right. Yeah. Or just <laughs> have, have, have nuclear tea. Right. Right. Yeah. It's you know, just stuff happens. <laughs> the Chinese law, you're exactly right, Trish. There isn't a law that legalizes killing people, obviously. You're still subject to criminal penalties, although those criminal penalties tend to be very few and far between in China because uh, the authorities are mostly either corrupt or disinterested. But the liability incentives are such that when you strike someone and maim them for life, uh, you have to pay for their care for the rest of their lives. Whereas if you kill them, there's only a one-time relatively small financial penalty. So the law actually does incentivize you to kill them. And uh, as a result, you see no shortage of videos on the internet of, unfortunately, motorists in China accidentally striking someone and then backing up and running over them again and again 
to ensure that they finish the job so they don't have open-ended legal liability. And a on that happy note. note. Okay. I I have never seen such a video. And I mean, they're out that, there. Sounds, that yeah. sounds insane. I haven't seen any videos, but like I said, I read an article about this a few years ago that went into depth about the you know social and cultural issues. And it talked about people that would you know, be crossing the street with their families and somebody gets struck and the person just hits them over and over again while their family's standing there. I mean, it's, it's pretty brutal. Yeah. And no, there, there are videos. I'm sad to say I've seen them. And that's going to be our show for today. I want to thank our guest, Colonel Eugene Finman, for this fascinating and thought-provoking, if tragic, discussion. Colonel, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, John, first of all, I thought we were going to end on a happy note after talking about war crimes. <laughs> I was just thinking that. We sold that to you as a lighthearted game at the end. Of the yeah, my, my bad. I know it was on my entries to visit, but... Uh, um, just be careful yeah. when you're crossing the street. Just be careful yeah. when you're crossing the street. Yeah. Okay. For those interested in an in-depth discussion about the humanitarian immigration crisis in Ukraine, please listen to last week's episode with attorney Andy Semichuk, hosted by our very own Trish Rich, who I also want to thank as my co-host here today, along with our producer, Jen Byrne, Adam Lockwood on sound, and everyone at the Legal Talk Network family. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at CBA at the bar, all one word. You can also email us at podcast at chicagobar.org. Please also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Audible or wherever you download your podcast. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for everyone here at the CBA, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you soon at the bar. 